we live in a world inundated with guilt and shame. This isn't a new phenomenon. In fact, guilt and shame go back all the way to the Garden of Eden and the entrance of sin into the world. Uh, sin, or rather, guilt and shame are in fact so universal that sociologists typically, they'll often divide societies, cultures into honor-shame societies or guilt and law societies. The difference between guilt and shame isn't always clearly defined. There's obviously some overlap, but it, you know, typically sociologists, they'll typically refer to guilt as feeling badly about something you've done, and shame is feeling badly about yourself, for who you are, for something more inherent and internal, touching on your very person. So in many ancient societies and in the Middle East today, the concept of hospitality is deeply ingrained, and therefore to fail to show hospitality and welcome to strangers is incredibly shameful. Or consider Nathaniel Hawthorne's novel, The Scarlet Letter, and how that novel revolves around the concept of the shame of sexual indiscretions. In some Asian and African cultures, deferring to one's elders and honoring one's ancestors is crucial. Every culture has these types of taboos, which, if transgressed, bring about deep guilt and shame. Of course, it's possible that you would feel guilt when you shouldn't, and it's possible to feel no guilt when you should. So, for example, our society today seems to accept pornography and adultery as perhaps amusing or basically harmless. And so, just as every society finds certain things shameful, these same societies also always find ways, prescribe certain remedies to atone for these transgressions. So, for example, consider a New York Times article written in 2018 entitled, How Can I Cure My White Guilt? The author writes in, I'm riddled with shame, white shame. This isn't helpful to me or to anyone, especially people of color. I feel like there is no me outside of my white, upper-class, cisgendered identity. I feel like my literal existence hurts people, like I'm always taking up space that should belong to someone else. I consider myself an ally. I research proper etiquette, read writers of color, vote in a way that will not harm POC and other vulnerable people. I engage in conversations about privilege with other white people. I take courses that will further educate me. I donate to Black Lives Matter. Yet I fear that nothing is enough. So notice the progression. First guilt, and then attempts to alleviate that guilt. Why do all cultures and societies have these concepts of guilt and shame? Why is it that humans feel this way and that we can feel this discomforting emotion so much that we invent ways to atone for our transgressions? This morning we turn to Hebrews 9 as we consider God's appointed means for you to have a truly clean conscience. There is only one way to clear you of both your objective guilt and your subjective sense of guilt. And his name is Jesus. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn to Hebrews 9 if you're not there already. The book of Hebrews was written to a struggling congregation who was tempted to revert back to Judaism, uh, to cease from following Christ. And so for the first eight chapters, the author has been reminding the congregation of how much better Jesus is. Right? He's better than the prophets, angels, Moses, 
Adam, Joshua, the high priest, he mediates a better covenant. Jesus is better in every conceivable way than the Old Testament, Old Covenant. And therefore, it's because Jesus is so much better and because apostatizing and abandoning the Lord is so terrible that the author has given us a number of exhortations. In chapter 2, verse 1, he wrote, We must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. In chapter 3, he wrote, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And then in chapter 6, he urged us, Therefore, let us build on the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not having to lay again a foundation. Last week, in chapter 8, the author revealed the better promises of the new covenant, citing Jeremiah 31. And so in chapter 8, verse 12, we read, For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. It's this last promise of cleansing and forgiveness that the author is going to take up this week, and next week, and the following week, and probably the following week after that. Uh, So the author really kind of hones in and focuses on this last promise of mercy and forgiveness. So it's with all that in mind that we come to Hebrews 9. We'll have two sections this morning, verses 1 to 14, and the main idea of our passage is simply this. Christ's offering purifies and perfects our conscience. Christ's offering purifies and perfects our conscience. So look with me at Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we can't now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? From dead works 
to serve the living God. Amen. Our first point is found in verses 1 to 10, entitled, Imperfect Purity. In these verses, the author focuses on the deficiencies of the old tabernacle and the old sacrificial system. So previous chapters, really since like 5, 6, 7, and the beginning of 8, drew our attention to the priests of the old covenant, the Levitical priests. Here, the focus is now on the tent and the sacrifices which are offered. And so the author begins by drawing our attention to the fact that there were two different sections to this tent, which is known as the tabernacle. Uh, God had explicitly given instructions to Moses in Exodus 25 and 26 on how to build this tent, how to build this tabernacle as Israel was leaving Egypt. So God saved them from Egypt. At Mount Sinai, he gave them the Ten Commandments and other laws. And, And part of the instructions that he gave them was how to build this tent, this tabernacle. It's not as if Israel invented how to worship God. No, they received his regulations and what he told them. And so verse 2 reads, a tent was prepared. The first section, it's called the holy place. So again, the reason it's a tent is because Israel was traveling literally from Mount Sinai to the promised land. So they needed to be able to kind of set it up, take it down. And you had this big kind of outer court, this big first section And the priest would be in here daily offering sacrifices. It's where they would meet the people. The people would go to worship. And so obviously this first section was important. It was holy. And yet it wasn't the pinnacle or the most important part of the tabernacle. That's why verse 3 reads, Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place you can grasp the greater significance of this second place by the items found there. Uh, From the Ark of the Covenant to the tablets of the Ten Commandments, from Aaron's staff, which saved Israel in the wilderness, and the manna from Israel's wandering, you know, these are some of the highlights, as it were, of God saving his people. Uh, Verse 5 mentions the cherubim of glory, which overshadowed the mercy seat. This is where God would meet with his people. Uh, This was the most important, the most exclusive, the most amazing part of the tent and the tabernacle. And yet, for as great as the Holy of Holies, the most uh, most holy place was, well, any old Israelite couldn't enter. Though the nation was in covenant with the Lord, you couldn't buy a day pass or get season tickets to enter God's presence. For as amazing and awesome as God's presence in the most holy place was, it was severely restricted. While the priests and the worshipers went regularly into the first section, verse 7 states, into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood. Uh, This refers to the Day of Atonement, uh, what Brenda read earlier from Leviticus 16. For all the good and the gracious things which the Lord did for Israel, for all the hope of intimacy and fellowship with God, the truth is that Israel only had so much access. There was only so much closeness. The problem, of course, is what is mentioned, sin. That's why the priest had to bring a sacrifice for himself and then a second sacrifice for the people. Israel's sin was a barrier to their relationship with God, to their enjoyment of God. 
Just like sin was the barrier between Adam and Eve, what kicked them out of God's presence, so sin is what removed Israel from God's presence. They could not stay in the Holy of Holies. And so the author, the reason why he brings up this once-per-year access is to remind his congregation, why would you go back to, to Judaism, which has less access to God? Why would you revert back to less intimacy? That would be like a newly married couple saying, man, weren't things so much better when we were engaged? Oh, we just knew each other so much better then. I just feel like our relationship was so much better. Now, sometimes that's true, but not for good reasons. Uh, man, w- when we started dating, didn't we know each other so much better? I just feel like we really got each other and we've just grown apart. Well, friends, obviously that would be a problem. If you love someone, you will want to know them and enjoy them and spend time with them. If you value and treasure them, you will not want to spend less time with them, but you will want more intimacy and knowledge. And so for this initial congregation, why would you consider going back from Christ to this once per year kind of thing? It's like settling for the outer tent, effectively. This is what verse 8 clarifies. And it says, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. This gets a little bit confusing, but the point is that the way to access God's, the way into God's presence, it was not yet fully open for as long as the Israelites had to go through all these steps of the outer, the, you know, you got to go to the first tent, and then you got to go into the second tent, and there are all these steps to get there. Uh, in this, the Holy Spirit was indicating to you and me that, I mean, like, look, Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God. That was not happening in the tabernacle. For as great as the promises were, for as great as God's condescension was in coming down to be with his people, there, were, there was nowhere near the, the fellowship and harmony and the love and the relationship that Adam and Eve had with the first and the second tents, the sections. The high point of the old covenant, which was God dwelling with Israel, he as their God and they as his people, was never actually fully available. Because as we discussed last week, the Mosaic covenant was like a marriage between the Lord and Israel. But it's not a very good marriage if you can only see each other once a year. So what was the purpose of the sacrifices? We see that in verses 9 and 10. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body. Here we see that the Old Testament sacrifices could never truly take away sin. They could never truly cleanse the conscience. Our works and our sacrifices, no matter how noble or sincere, these sacrifices that the Israelites offered could never truly save. They just dealt with the body, but they could never go deeper than that. It's similar to how Hebrews 7 said, the law made nothing perfect. And so I think the main takeaway from this first point is similar to what we've seen so far in the book of Hebrews. 
uh, is that there is a wrong way to seek a clean conscience. There is a wrong way to seek to be cleansed from your sin. There is a superficial way of doing this, but that doesn't really touch the heart. For our consciences to be perfected, we need something better than the law or these sacrifices. Now, now what is the conscience? It appears a couple times in our passage. What is your conscience, which these sacrifices could not perfect? One author defines it as a capacity for moral judgment. Your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. So every human being, everyone made in the image of God, has a conscience. Romans 2 talks about this in, uh, in some detail. Every human being knows that there are such things as right and wrong. It's why we know that lying and murdery, murder and adultery and stealing, these things are wrong. We know it's wrong to promote ourselves at the expense of others. And yet the truth is that we all do these things which we know are wrong. And thus, we all have guilty consciences at times. We are all burdened with the knowledge of the ways that we have fallen short of God's moral law. And of course, different cultures, different people, they kind of, you know, some things they'll define differently. Uh, but even given those exceptions, the truth is that we all know that there is such a thing as right and wrong, and we all know that we don't perfectly keep it. And so that's how... Every human being at some point gets this stab of conscience, right? Where we know that we've done wrong. And in that moment, there are a couple different options. It's kind of like a choose your own adventure. Uh, option one is hardening your heart. A searing your conscience. That is, it's possible to so give yourself over to your sin that you no longer feel remorse or guilt for it. It's like when a liar or a thief who at first was bothered by their crimes, now simply shrugs their shoulders. That would be to harden, that's what it is to harden your conscience. At the same time, many also respond to their guilty feelings by trying to clean their conscience through good works, uh, through being a good person. Yet just as it was impossible for these Jewish sacrifices to perfect your conscience, it is likewise impossible to perfect your conscience, to have a clean conscience through your good deeds. Right? Because, and that's because a God-given conscience will only be a clean conscience when we know that we have right standing with the Lord. But if right standing is based on your good deeds, well, how can you ever know if you're good enough? Right? So, don't answer out loud. How many sins have you committed this past week? How many sins have you committed this past year? How many sins have you committed in your whole life? Do you know the number? Okay, well, again, if we're just kind of basing clean conscience on good deeds, how many good deeds have you done this past week? Or year? Or in your life? Do you, can you, you know, have you tallied it up day by day? And for your good deeds, were your motives entirely pure? Wasn't there a bit of selfishness and pride wrapped up in them? And plus, what's the ratio that God's looking for? Uh, what's his standard of good to bad? Is it one to one? Three to one? Ten to one? 
The truth is that humans have tried covering our sin with our own sacrifices and our own efforts since the world began, since sin entered the world. Okay, so you remember in the Garden of Eden, before sin entered, Genesis 2.24 says that Adam and Eve were both naked and unashamed. You see, there was nothing to feel guilty about. There was nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to be embarrassed by. They were completely absorbed in love to God and love for one another. There was no fear. And yet, after they ate the fruit God told them not to eat, what's the very first thing that happens, according to Genesis 3? It says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. When it says their eyes were opened, they knew they were naked, it means they felt shame. They felt guilt and shame for what they had done. Sin brings shame, and that shame led them to seek to cover their shame, didn't it? Uh, They tried to cover it with their own loincloths. Uh, The the Hebrew word is very skimpy. But then, okay, here's the crazy thing. When God shows up, what do they do? They still hide. Why do they hide if their sin is perfectly covered? Well, it's because they knew that they actually hadn't covered their sin. So they knew they were still naked. They were still ashamed. Despite their best efforts of covering their shame, they hid. Their self-cleansing hadn't really done the trick. Their consciences accused them. And so this is our dilemma as well. Like Adam and Eve, we cannot cleanse our conscience by good works or by sacrifices for all the times that we have grumbled and gossiped, slandered and been ungrateful, harsh and demeaning and selfish, lustful and idolatrous, bigoted and violent, self-righteous and proud, boastful, lying, manipulating, hypocritical, perverse, vain. Beloved, we can never clean our conscience. The Apostle Paul confirms this when he says in Galatians 2, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. What's Paul saying? He's saying that if if you could get a clean conscience and perfect righteousness from the law, by your obedience, by your devotion to God, doing the sacrifices, whatever it is, Jesus didn't need to die. His death was pointless. You could do it on your own. This means, beloved, do not be fooled by those who try to allay your conscience and assuage your guilt through any kind of religious or moral actions. Friends, the truth is that you cannot go to church enough to save you from your sins. You cannot pray the rosary or give to the poor or serve the hurting or abstain from sin enough to cleanse your conscience. Ultimately, if you seek a perfect conscience through your own deeds, you will never have lasting peace. You'll just be riding the waves of whether you had a good week or a bad week. Your relationship with God will be in fits and starts or spurts, whatever the phrase is, because you'll never be able to have a consistent sense of harmony and fellowship and joy because it will be based on your behavior, which is not consistent. All of us, all of us need something better. A better sacrifice, a better hope, a better cleansing. 
That's what we find in our second section in verses 11 to 14, entitled Perfect Purity. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats, calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. There is so much encouragement here. I love that opening line that Christ appeared to bring us good things. He doesn't even spell out what the good things are, but he's bringing us good. Uh, Right now, our family, we're reading Chronicles of Narnia, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and this reminds me a little bit of when Peter and Susan and Lucy, they're traipsing through the snow, and Father Christmas, Santa Claus, appears, and he gives them good gifts to fight the Wicked Witch. Uh, But, you know, he's just coming to bring gifts. Uh, Jesus is our elder brother, come to share his riches and take our poverty. We saw last week uh, the Lord in the New Covenant from Jeremiah 32. He promises, I will rejoice in doing them good with all my heart and all my soul. Guys, how big is God's heart and God's soul? When God wants to do something with his all, does he generally get it done? You better believe it. He is all in on doing good to his children. Praise the Lord. Verse 11 also says that Christ made his sacrifice in the greater and perfect tent which isn't in this creation. If you just skip down to verse 24, a few verses later, the author says, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. The point is that Jesus accomplished the real thing. It's kind of like the difference between playing a Madden football video game and playing in the NFL, right? So I suppose that there are some people who say they have won more football games than Tom Brady, that they have won more Super Bowls than Tom Brady, but they're talking about a video game. Uh, Brady, he won the real thing. Well, so Christ, he accomplished the real thing as well. It wasn't a cheap or easy victory for Christ either. But when the other high priest bought a sacrifice, right, they would just grab some bull, some goat, Uh, They would grab one of the animals. They would kill it. But when Christ suffered as our high priest, what did he offer? Verse 12 says that he entered by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. There is a price that needed to be paid for us to gain access to God's throne. So what blood would suffice? It is only Christ. The Son of God willingly laid down his life to save you, to accomplish not a temporary salvo, but an eternal redemption. And thus, Jesus was both the high priest and the sacrifice. Right? He is our all-sufficient Savior. We have been bought and freed and forgiven by the most precious thing in all the universe, the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no one and no thing more precious to God than his son. There is no one that he loves dearer. And yet God the Father sent God the Son, and God the Son willingly laid down his life to save us. 
We don't need to worry that the price of admission hasn't been paid. We don't need to worry that our sin still owns us. In Christ, O Christian, you are freed. And so our passage concludes with one final contrast. Look at verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Notice three things about verse 14. Notice first that salvation is Trinitarian. Do you see that? It's Christ's blood. He offers himself by the Spirit, and he offers himself to God. To refer to the eternal Spirit is a clear reference to the divinity of the Spirit. So one of the defining characteristics and marks of God being God is that he is eternal. God is the only thing that is eternal. Everything else is created. The universe had a beginning. Evil began. And one day evil will end. But God is eternal. He had no beginning. And thus to say that the spirit is eternal is to affirm his clear deity. Second, to state that Christ was without blemish is to state that he is the perfect sacrifice. He had no debt of sin to pay. He had no wages of sin to give account for. His death was not for his own blemishes, but for ours. And then third, notice that Christ, and it is his shed blood alone, which can purify our conscience from dead works. This is the cleansing that we so desperately need. Because in the blood of Jesus, we find full forgiveness. When we try to cleanse ourselves by our good works, I don't know if you've noticed this, in your own heart or perhaps people you've talked to, one of the things that happens is that sin is consistently minimized. The heinousness of our transgressions is consistently downplayed. You know, we say other people. Uh, I'm not as bad as other people. Uh, My sins, they weren't so bad. I was under a lot of stress back then. The problem is, of course, that we know that those things are no excuse. Plenty of people are tired and stressed, but that doesn't make anger or grumbling or selfishness okay. Uh, Plenty of people are worse, but that doesn't lessen God's standard. And so we're left trying to constantly minimize our sins, trying to maximize our righteousness, and, and it's exhausting to try to always be measuring up, knowing that we never can do it. It is the the archetypal hamster on a wheel. We'll never make progress. Our conscience still convicts us. And so that is what is so amazing about the blood of Jesus Christ. It truly washes us clean. And not because our sins aren't very bad. Not because, you know, we're fairly decent people. Not because we are worthy or good, but because he is. 1 Peter 1 says that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So the solution and the way to a clean conscience isn't by minimizing our sin, but by receiving the Savior. 
It's why in the Christian life, we don't have to go around justifying our behavior. Always trying to explain to our spouse or our kids or our boss or friends from church why we're always in the right. We can admit when we failed. We can recognize and confess our sins. It's like Spurgeon said, that great 19th century English preacher. He said, if any, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him. For you are worse than he thinks you to be. The point is that now that Christ has paid my sin, I don't have to make excuses and try to, you know, concoct this image of competence and whatever. I, I can recognize that, yes, I'm a sinner, but that doesn't destroy me. I'm not doomed. I'm loved and forgiven. Now, to be clear, even for Christians, there is a time for feeling guilt, conviction, and shame. Namely, after we sin. So Christ's sacrifice doesn't mean that you should go rob a bank and feel good about it. No, when we sin, we should grieve that, repent of it, ask the Lord for his grace, and then that's it. It's over. It's done. It's buried in the depths of the sea. Again, forgive the Narnia reference, but it's like when Edmund is returned to his siblings. So Edmund had betrayed them, like wicked, bad, horrible stuff. You're reading the book, and you're like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe he did this. And then he returns, and Aslan, who's a Christ figure, he brings Edmund back to his siblings, and he says to them, here is your brother. There is no need to talk to him about what is past. You see, in Christ, there is no more shame and guilt. Our consciences, as long as we're not living in sin, shouldn't be burdened, shouldn't be weighed down by former sins. You are forgiven. If you've confessed it to the Lord, the debt, it's gone. So Christian, the measure of spiritual maturity is not how morose you are after you've sinned or how weighed down you feel every day. If you have sinned, repent and be done with it. And then rejoice. Rest in Christ's finished work. Don't beat yourself up and dwell on how terrible you are. Does Christ meditate on your awfulness? Right, that's what we do, right? If, if we fall into sin, that's why I can't believe I yelled at my kids. I can't believe I went to that website again. I can't believe I slacked off at work. I can't believe I treated this person. And we just, we can ruminate over our sin and we can dwell on it and just, and we think that that's how God treats us. What does verse 12 of chapter 8 say though? What does God promise in the new covenant? I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Friends, if God has forgiven you, you've repented, it is prideful to say, well, I'm going to remember this and dwell on this, even though God has forgiven it. If he says the debt's been paid, then it is prideful to insist, no, 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 I really need to pay it by how miserable I'm going to feel for the next 24 hours. Let me just make two more comments about having a clean conscience. Uh, first, Number one, don't feel guilty for sins you've not actually committed. Don't be ashamed if you've not sinned. For those who have been abused, 
were assaulted, for those who've been embarrassed or degraded, this can be a real challenge. Um, perhaps you feel dirty because of ways that you have been sinned against. And so, dear brother or sister, if that's you, let me encourage you not to be defined by your trauma. You are not defined by it. You are not owned by another's sin. You are bought with the blood of Jesus and do not submit to the lies of Satan. You are free. This also means, Christian, that you don't need to feel bad about committing sins that aren't really sins. We saw that in the opening quote from the New York Times article. Uh, This author was racked with guilt and shame when she hadn't done anything wrong. She was white. This is true. But that's not a sin. Uh, Beware of the world's legalisms that adds to God's commands of what you must do. So you don't need to feel bad, for example, if you own an SUV. You're not sinning if you eat at McDonald's. Uh, Caring for your kids isn't disadvantaging other children. You can be both grateful for America's history and recognize its flaws and failings. As Christians, we should not, we do not want our consciences tied and enslaved to other people's opinions and demands. Uh, We don't want the world to set the agenda. We want God and his world. We want to feel no guilt and conviction when we've not sinned. And we do want to feel guilt. We do want to feel conviction when we've sinned. Our conscience pricks us. The Holy Spirit convicts us. We repent. And then, boom, it's over and done. And then the second thing is don't underestimate the value, the joy, the peace of a clean conscience. I can remember my freshman year of college, I would go to church on the weekends, but I was also in a fraternity, and so I would indulge in the party life all weekend. So there was kind of total hypocrisy in my life. And kind of the two worst parts of my week were, number one, walking back to my dorm drunk past the university police officers. So there was a station kind of right by my dorm. And there was this terrible fear of being found out. Right, I knew that I was in the wrong. I knew that I had broken the law. And I was guilty. And so for that like minute or two kind of leading up to and walking, I was miserable. And yet the most awful feeling I had all week was actually going to church. There was this heavy sense of shame and guilt for my hypocrisy. Uh, Knowing that I was a fraud, that I wasn't who I claimed to be. Pretending was miserable and exhausting. And so if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, but you're living in some secret sin, dear brother or sister in Christ, I beg you, bring your sin into the light. Confess it to a friend or a spouse. Come find me after service this morning or tonight. Don't let shame keep you in the dark. Run to Jesus and find forgiveness and cleansing in his blood. If you are feeling the conviction and prick of the Holy Spirit today, don't let the sun go down without confessing it to a friend. Don't let Monday come around, tomorrow, without confessing. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, 
uh, it's hard for me to even begin to describe the blessing and the joy and the peace of having a clean conscience. It's like taking this massive burden off your back that you didn't even know was there. I can remember when I, <laughs> soon after I began following Christ, this is kind of weird, but I would, I would, you know, like, we'd be, like, hanging out, just this kind of Christian group at Friends. We'd be late at night, and I'd be walking back to my dorm, and there would be these, you know, police officers, and I would just feel this immense sense of freedom and, like, praise the Lord. I'm not breaking any laws. Like, I'm an upstanding citizen right now. It's great. No guilt. No fear. The truth is that all of us have broken God's law. All of us know that we've done wrong and that we're guilty. And so it can be easy to get used to this kind of low-grade anxiety and fear. And yet, it doesn't have to be this way. For Jesus lived the perfect life. He never sinned. And then he died on the cross as our substitute. He took the punishment we deserved. He bore God's wrath in our place. And then he rose from the grave victorious over sin and hell. And he proved that he's indeed the son of God. He's come to save humanity, if you but put your faith in him. Are you ashamed of your past? Do you feel guilty for the ways that you've lived? Come to Christ to find true and lasting peace. He is the only way to a clean conscience. And so let's conclude by noticing that last phrase in verse 14. Christ purifies our conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. While our evil works lead to death, the wages of sin is death, the God of life freely gives life to those who serve him. And so I just, I love the order here. It really even stuck out to me last night. Uh, Notice that we don't serve so that we can get a clean conscience, but that the clean conscience motivates us to serve. Uh, Now that Christ has cleansed us, now we want to serve God. Uh, We are debtors who've been forgiven. And so now we love to give our all in the service to the king. We're traitors who've been pardoned. And so now we cheerfully work for the joy of our Lord. As Christians, we are orphans who've been adopted. And now we love to express our gratitude to our heavenly father. What does it mean to serve God? It's not as if God needs anything from us, but that like an all-wise, all-good father, he delights to see his children's obedience. So therefore, to serve God is to worship him and to be devoted to him like he deserves. It's to work for his kingdom and glory and fame. What does this look like practically? I think the answer is, the author has already given us the answer. In chapter 6, verse 10, he referred to this congregation and he mentioned, your work and the love that you've shown for God's name in serving God the saints. Isn't that incredible? Your work and the love that you've shown for God's name in serving the saints. We serve God by serving the saints. If you love God, you will love the church. It's really that simple. So Trinity Church of Bedford, let me keep encouraging you to keep serving the Lord. By serving the saints. I keep serving on the hospitality team. Keep volunteering for child care. Keep bringing meals and helping people move and discipling one another and providing rides and reading the Bible together. 
Not because it's guaranteed that people will notice and thank you and express their gratitude. That's not why we serve. Ultimately, we serve the saints because we love the Lord. Uh, Brothers and sisters, I know that we've had a ton of babies over the last year or two. I know there's the weekly grind of setup and teardown. I know there are needs innumerable. Let's pray for one another and that we would have strength to serve Christ. Don't burn out. Don't get resentful. Uh, I trust the Spirit will give you wisdom in knowing when to pull back and when to dive in. As much as you're able, let's rejoice that we who once lived in works of death now have been given the chance, the opportunity to serve the God of life. And we do so not to earn our way to heaven, but with a clean conscience and in gratitude to our Savior, all because of Christ and his precious blood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we marvel at your love that you would offer up your only begotten Son for us and for our salvation. Lord Jesus, we praise you. We marvel at your mercy, your devotion, uh, that you would would come and save sinners such as us to cleanse us. And Spirit, we praise you that you are the one that works in us, that convicts us of sin and reminds us of Christ's accomplishment, that it is finished. Uh, Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd help us to indeed believe those promises. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to serve you uh, because of what you've done for us through the blood of your Son. Uh, Cause us to serve you with joy and humility, and may you get all the glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends,